Welcome to the Really Useful Podcast. I'm Christian Corley and with me this week is my Make Use of colleague, James Frew. Hi, James. How are you? Hey, Christian. Uh, yeah, I'm good, thanks. You had a good weekend? Yes, I was learning how to write a sitcom that weekend. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's very different. A bit different a bit from my is... usual technology writing. Absolutely, yeah. It's um, It was up in Newcastle was, um, with a guy called uh, Bennett Aaron, who's a scriptwriter in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, we uh, learned some interesting things. Uh, um, bits of it I knew already. I think it's helped crystallise things and put things into perspective and shape and context that yeah. I didn't see out from reading endless books on the subject. <laughs> what about you? What do you do? Um, I just had a bit of a relaxing weekend actually, because this is linked into something we're going to talk about on the podcast. Was last weekend I was still in Germany covering IFA for uh, for the site for make use of. Yeah. Uh, so this is my first weekend off. We were very busy while we were there, so it was nice to just catch up for a couple of days, have a bit of a rest. Sure. Yeah, it was nice. Uh, okay. Well, let's move on then into that. Um, in this week's really useful podcast, we're going to be finding out um, what was spotted at IFA that James thinks will be something to think about buying in the next few months or next year. Uh, We'll also be uh, investigating whether or not Huawei's products can spy on Americans or anyone else for that matter and a new Google Photos feature that helps you relive your memories. Uh, We've got some tips for you as well. How to clean your AirPods and AirPod case. Um, What or what kind of online accounts are being sold on the dark web, what apps you can use to email, uh, to manage, I beg your pardon, email newsletters and, if necessary, unsubscribe, and what is the Windows tech support scam, what do you need to know about it, and, you know, should you even bother answering the phone to these people? Uh, so, James Frew, you went to what we discovered last week, everybody, it's called IFA and not IFA, um, over in Berlin. I did. Um, so I, I was calling it IFA for the longest time as well. <laughs> it's because it stands for something, um, but obviously it's in German and the I is normally pronounced E or something, something along those lines. So IFA. Um, so, yeah, as you talked about with Ben last week, um, it's very similar to CES, which happens in January except its focus isn't predominantly on press it's on regular consumers so you can buy a ticket and head in there as a regular person you know you don't have to have a press pass or anything they do have two press days though where they announce new products and that kind of stuff but it's more geared at letting you see what you can actually go and buy right now Um, and most product launches if they do happen are available straight away so cs is more like future tech these are the things that we're working on ifa is more like you can go and buy this right now Okay. Um, so we did see a lot of very cool things. Obviously, there was a lot of what you've come to expect from consumer tech. So headphones, speakers, smart home stuff, that kind of thing. Um, but some of the products that got us particularly hyped were the the more unusual ones, I would say. Um, so the, from my perspective, my favorite thing that I saw while we were there was this thing called the Shift phone, which is made by a German company called Shift. And if you've heard of, um, actually, I'll take that another way. Smartphones aren't particularly ethical or sustainable. So from whether the materials are sourced from sort of conflict areas, usually in Africa or Asia, um, even down to their production. So often in China, possibly in poor working conditions. Um, so the whole industry is kind of built on that. And so for those of us that are kind of more interested in 
ethical technology, I suppose. There's not really been many options. There's been the Fairphone, which is also good, but it has limited availability and the reviews of the first two units were a bit iffy. So Shiftphone is similar. It's meant to be a modular, repairable, sustainable phone. So the whole idea of it is that it is sourced in a more eco-friendly way. The materials are from more, uh, you know, conflict-free areas where possible. It's not always going to be the case. Um, but it was really interesting to see this phone in person. So the Fairphone is made with the idea that it needs to be a mainstream device that they can pump out quite a lot of. The Shift Phone has a different angle. It wants to... Um, be, stick to its principles more than be a mainstream device, I, I would probably say is how it's going. So it focuses on low quantity production, but everything is done ethically. And the most interesting thing when you first see the phone is that you can actually take off all the bits. So a few years ago, you would have been able to take out the battery to your smartphone. You pretty much can't do that now, but you can do that on the shift phone. You just take the back off, take the battery out, and then you can get straight to the motherboard. There's nothing between you and, and the, the electronics inside. But the most interesting thing is the screen. So we've got an article on the Shift phone specifically from IFA, but we also have a roundup of the best of IFA. And uh, you can see pictures of this. But you can detach the screen just by pressing on the sides, even when the phone is still running. And cool. it allows you to get behind. So it's only connected by a ribbon. There's no soldering. Yep. There's nothing keeping it in place, no glue. And the components, so things like the camera and the buttons, aren't soldered into place either. They're clipped. So you can take them out while the phone is still running. Um, so you don't. it's not hard to replace. If you were worried about privacy, for example, you can just open the front of the phone off and take out the camera. I mean, I, it's hard for me to describe in words just how awesome it was to see something like this because it's very rare that you get something that's not just marketing for this kind of thing. You know, lots of brands use the word ethical or eco-friendly or environmentally friendly or whatever, but they're not, or it's a very small part of the device. But this is built into the entire company, started by two brothers. They live in a really small village in the middle of Germany. Um, it's kind of like a, a commune almost, you know, they've built, they've redeveloped a house so that all the office can be in there and they have their own community garden where they grow things like is they live the lifestyle that they project with the phone too. And I think that's quite important to understand the motivations of the people that are creating the device. But so that was my favorite thing at, at Eva. I think. Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating thing. It's been around for a few years, hasn't it? Is this, am I right in thinking it's an Android? It is an Android based phone. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they have their own version of Android called Shift OS, but it's, okay. it's predominantly, it's de-Googled Android, really. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, do you, can that go mainstream, do you think? Their ambition isn't to make it mainstream. I think they, they want yeah. to, they want it to stick to the people that are really enthused by this idea. Um, right. Because if they expand too far, they kind of move into Fairphone territory, which is sure. doing the sustainable business model. But you do have to make compromises, obviously. So you, you need to have the right production quantities. You're going to need to have uh, suppliers ordering things. You know, it, it becomes a lot harder to be for them to be in control of their production process. Mm. Um, personally, I think it's a really well-designed device that doesn't feel like you're making any compromises to have an ethical device. And I think that's the most important part about it. 
Um, and they don't have any outside investors either. So the first time around, I can't remember how they financed the, uh, oh, that was it. They crowdsourced the first device. And then every subsequent device has only been funded by pre-orders. So it means that they know exactly how many they need to make. And they also already have the money coming in. So there's no one influencing what they choose to do either. I think I was really floored by the whole thing. Like, you know, with us being in technology and technology writing, although some headphones do excite me, predominantly, you know, a headphone's a headphone. And for the most part, smartphones have become smartphones. They're all quite similar. So to get to see something like this, where not only is it well designed, it's very well thought through, and they are trying to make a difference with their business model. I was just, I was blown away by it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I'm not entirely convinced by this, this whole mainstream thing. I mean, we've got the Libre M5 phone coming out um, yeah. imminently. And, you know, that's not going to be a mainstream phone. No. Um, however much fans of open source might want it to be. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not convinced by, by that whole take on it. But I am really fascinated by by the uh, smart, smart, shift. No, shift. Thank you. <laughs> shift phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Smartphone's been done already. Okay, so I mean, was that the only thing that you enjoyed, or was there, was there anything else that um, could come along and disrupt we, things? Nothing that hit me quite as hard as that, but there were some cool products there too. Um, we saw the launch of Fossil's new smartwatches. So they run Android Wear OS or Google's, you know, Wear platform. Yep. They um android based smartwatches have kind of had a bit of an issue in the market you know they've not really found their footing and fossil is pretty much the only company that really still puts a lot of effort in and they are really nice devices you know they they look good they feel good they run good hardware um if you're looking for a slightly less expensive alternative to something like the apple watch um then they're a really good choice one of the other things that I was quite keen to see was um, because we were in Germany, um, there were a lot of German household appliance manufacturers there. Yeah. And uh, Miele is is one of the most notable in the country, and they're known for very high quality white goods, so things like uh, refrigerators, washing machines, that kind of thing. And they also do uh, home uh, kitchen appliances. But they've recently taken an angle to move into the smart kitchen, so you know connected devices. And uh, me and Joe Coburn, who is also a writer for Make Use Of, we went to go and look at their display and demo of the smart kitchen. And it was absolutely incredible. You know, smart devices are, are cool in principle, but often they don't work well with each other. Mm-hmm. Or you can't see the use case for having this particular device over that one and whatever it is. And this was a demonstration of an induction cooker that is controlled by an app, will get up to the precise temperature settings, also has built-in recipes so that it knows how long things need to cook for, how long the hot oven needs to be on for, that kind of thing. So that's the first sort of connected bit. So it connects to an app on your phone and then the cooker itself, which can be controlled by the app. But then the most incredible thing was they've got this, um, I guess you call it a cooker hood, you know, the extractor fan thing. And it sits on top of, you know, it's connected on top of the, above the cooker. And when you start cooking, it goes, oh, I know what type of food you're cooking and I know what temperature it's on. So I will automatically start the fan at a particular setting to optimize the extraction so that it doesn't interfere. And that was just incredible. And not only was this thing really smart, 
but it looked amazing too. It was like um, a little egg thing that when it turns on, the sides part a little bit, like kind of like an egg cracking. And then it has smart lighting inside, which you can control through the app too. So it, the whole thing was just is a brilliant example of something that was really well thought through and well designed and worked just seamlessly. It was perfect. I was really impressed by that. Wow. Cool. The kitchen of the future. Mm. Okay. All right. So um, there's far more material about the EFA event on makeuseof.com where you can have a you can follow the show notes below us with every other item in this uh, podcast. We will tell you where to go to find out more. Uh, we're going to move on now to uh, Huawei, who have been at the center of attention for quite a while, especially, well, we say especially in the United States and Europe, but actually it seems that their uh, notoriety in uh, having questionable attitudes towards either domestic or industrial espionage seems to extend also into Africa. Um, We've been looking at whether or not it's safe to use them, um, whether they're spying on Americans. They made a keynote speech at IFA um, 2019. Did you catch this? Uh, I didn't go, but uh, okay. I, think it was, uh, I think it was Canon that, that attended that one. Sure. Um, and they have a new facial recognition system um, in the Kirin 995G, and which is a uh, new um, a new, a new uh, uh, chip uh, for their new smartphones and routers. Um, but I mean, really, the, everywhere Huawei goes, there's this uh, kind of um, circus now of whether on you know as as a as a state company, a Chinese state company, are they legitimate? Are they are they safe to use? Are they you know there's um, you know the United States are apparently um, pressuring the UK not to use uh, Huawei for 5G network, for instance. Um, do you want to expand on this, James? Yeah. So earlier, I think it was uh, 2018. Um, if you've been paying attention to the US political situation at all, you'll see that the US and China have been increasingly turning up the the heat on their trade war. So they started with essentially Americans used to produce a lot of their own goods. And over time, that production has shifted to China. It's led to a reduction in jobs and manufacturing in the United States and something which the, the country rightly used to pride itself on. Um, as a result of that, there's a sort of protectionist streak happening in the US, which is we want manufacturing to come back here, but obviously it is cheaper in China. So companies choose to manufacture in China. And as a result of that, the Trump administration started getting in a bit of a trade spat with China, imposing tariffs. And at the focal point of this became Huawei, which is currently one of the largest mobile phone manufacturers in the world. And this kind of happened at the same time that Apple, that it shipped more devices than Apple did. So Apple is obviously one of the wealthiest, largest companies in the entire world, and it is American. But Huawei is currently selling more smartphones than Apple. And just around that time, the trade dispute was kicking off, and then Huawei kind of ended up in the mix a little bit as the focal point of this trade disputes between the two countries. And it led to the US saying, you can't use any of our services. We're going to ban Huawei products from the US. Um, even our companies can't trade with them and that kind of thing. And it was a big 
problem because Google makes most of its money from licensing and licensing Android to handset manufacturers and selling their services and things like that. And Huawei being the largest smartphone manufacturers running Android uh, is obviously a large customer. So then it gets quite messy because you're then penalizing a, an American company too. And the whole situation is quite complex, really. And the focal point for the issue with Huawei is that they have this capability to send data back to China. And that's seen as bad. And and in theory, it is bad. You know, I think both myself and you, Christian, are, are big privacy advocates. We don't like the idea of people being able to take our data and kind of secretly store it anywhere or spy on sure. us. We like to things to be quite transparent. And so that is a problem. But how much of a problem it is and how different that is to any other Chinese company or for that matter, any American company is still kind of up for debate and kind of depends on your perspective of the situation. I think probably, I mean, I mean, this is extrapolating things considerably down the line a bit, but I think really the only difference um, is that if it is by a company that is registered where you in, in your country, mm. then you at least have some chance of legal recourse, whereas if it's a company that's, you know, a Chinese company or whatever, then that is probably a far more remote possibility than it already is I, yeah. I think that's pretty much the dividing line but then why does Huawei get most of the the issue well, there indeed yeah, yeah 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 because so for anyone that's not familiar with uh, China's policies the Chinese government is reasonably authoritarian and they like to be in control of all the data and um <laughs> <laughs> no, I think they're unreasonably authoritarian. Yes, to be with you. I, I, yes, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's probably a better way of phrasing it. <laughs> um, but they like to be in control of all the data that flows through the country and have ultimate control over it. So in theory, the issues that have been raised with Huawei and privacy and the legitimacy of data and spying could apply to any Chinese company yeah. that operates outside of China. Um, operates inside of China too, but this is predominantly an issue for the rest of the world versus China. Um, so that's why I mentioned the whole smartphone shipments thing earlier, because that seems to be the most likely reason that Huawei is getting so much of the flack for this particular problem, because yeah. it's true of every Chinese company. And so if you don't like the idea of Huawei spying on you, you can't really use any Chinese product either, because they're all going to have the same same problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's a fascinating thing. I mean, if if you don't want to be spied upon at all, then you're probably using the wrong phone. It's just a guess. Or tablet, yeah. you're probably using the wrong yeah. one. Maybe um, I mentioned the Libra M5 earlier. Maybe um, head to uh, the Purism website. Um, I think it's Puri.sm and find out a bit more about the products that they uh, have on offer uh, in in their uh, product range. Um, which he got to in a rather roundabout way. Um, let's go for something a little uh, jollier, uh, which is uh, Google Photos now helps you relieve your memories. Um, it's a new feature called Memories. Um, these use a stories format. Uh, oh God, do you know what? I hate stories on Facebook. God, oh, <laughs> oh that's such an irritating thing. Um, that's for another time, though. Um, so, yeah, you can use the Google Photos Memories and uh, feature. Uh, which um, 
it's designed to, as Google say, put your memories front and center in Google Photos uh, with your media, quote, again, privately presented to you so you can sit back and enjoy some of your best moments, which, um, I mean, for um, that seems a little bit narcissistic for me. Um, but, um, <laughs> yeah, so basically, um, I mean, Google Photos have gone from strength to strength over the past few months. Um, I've certainly found myself looking... Um, using it in a slightly different way um, as they've revised the user interface. They've also changed how the um, assistant creates movies as well. And rather than give you kind of an open-ended movie feature, it's now kind of themed movies mm. all set to particular themes. So if I click assistant now, and then if I click movie, then it gives me one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten options for a movie. Whereas before it was a lot more open-ended and you yeah. can select select the bits um that you choose um now then let's um let's just try this out then memories yeah it's a weird one um because what i'm seeing are um yeah i think they need to work on this i'm seeing screenshots from android apps and uh, <laughs> And footage of me building a PC for a make use of article. Uh, well, I mean, it's very, it's very on topic, isn't it? On try, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. On brand. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I suppose. I mean, I, the, the thing about that is that it's full of pictures of my children. In addition, mm. and none of them have popped up in any of these memories. Yeah. <laughs> so this so, this kind of brings yeah. up an interesting point about how. So this is essentially like a. You've probably heard of the app Time Hop. It uh, yep. reminds you of things that happened in the past, you know, memories that you've created basically from photos and videos. Sure. And this feature has then jumped into social media. So it's now part of Facebook. There's a whole memory section. Uh, Google Photos is implementing it, and we're likely to see it in more places too. But because they're automatically generated, it does kind of make you wonder what's the algorithm behind it that's generating those things and how does it decide and are there ways to exclude certain things you know that kind of stuff yeah because uh, facebook gets in quite a lot of trouble with this feature for saying oh surprise you've got a memory today you go and click on it and it's something you'd rather not remember so say you've posted about the passing of a family member or something bad that happened in your life sure and those are events you don't want to necessarily have thrown up in your face every year as a reminder and there's currently not really any way to modify what it shows you facebook has kind of done a little bit to try and make it not go like to look for keywords and particular things so that it's not showing you the worst things but there's not there's still no particular option for you to say i don't want to see this type of thing so like you know it's not a very helpful feature for say christian who's just looked at his memories and seen a bunch of screenshots when you know it could have been one of his kids birthdays or something like that that you'd yeah. rather remember yeah. and it does make you wonder if if we're going to become reliant on these technologies to remind us of things that happens in the past and to kind of become our memory if you like um they kind of need to be a bit more transparent about how they're shaping how we view the past yeah, I can't argue with that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's obviously work to do on that app, but uh, I look forward to using it more in future. Let us move on to AirPods. Do you know, I I, I get to this. I, I'm basically at the stage where, apart from these 
beauties up here, which obviously don't go into my ear. Uh, when it comes to in-ear listening, I'm at a stage where I basically l just discard them every 12 months and buy a new set. Mm. Uh, because AirPods and similar in-ear uh, earphones do get dirty. Yeah. Um, which I, which is quite, um, kind of why um, Brent Dirk's article on cleaning your AirPods is kind of welcome. Uh, because it's, it's important to know that they're not water resistant. Uh, virtually no earphone is water resistant because there's a small, well, there's little bits of electronics in there and it's not all, uh, well, none of it's waterproof, basically. Uh, now, he um, suggests using some microfiber cloths and that's, you know, that bit makes sense and some electronic safe cleaning uh, uh, formula is also a good idea. But the big problem with these things is the earwax. And I hope you're not you know, listening to this munching on your breakfast bagel or anything. Because, um, you know, earwax is a problem. And if you are listening to this munching on your breakfast bagel, perhaps you're listening to this on a headset and you've, you know, it's just hit home what is happening in your ears <laughs> as you chew because earwax is loosened as, you, as your jaw moves. Um, and sticking things in your ears is an unnatural way of getting earwax out. That's not the way you're supposed to do it. Um, now, it can be cleaned, obviously, but I mean, this is it, it is quite gruesome. And this is why I basically change my earphones um, every 12 months or so, even like replacing, you know, you, know, you can take off the little rubber sheath and like bang it on the table and stuff and scrape. You know, get the gummy yeah. bits out, but I they aren't nice, really, are they? No, there's something a bit unpleasant about the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, and because you can't wash them, you're kind of having to manually clean it. And earwax is one of those things where it can be a bit sticky or it can harden on the device, so it's a bit hard yeah. and tricky to to properly clean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, um, I mean, cleaning the case is also important, and there is a useful tool that uh, Brent highlights called the Full Circle Control Alt Clean Set, which is worth looking at. Now, I think if you are if you are an EarPod user or you use in-ear headphones, then taking a look at this article and going through the various steps to make sure that your earphones um, are clean and hygienic. Uh, because, as James says, it does get a bit, um, it's, it's pretty disgusting. It, it does get a bit buggy. <laughs> and also, um, you know, that's it's, it's not hygienic. And you don't want to be sticking things that aren't clean in your ears, do you? No, absolutely no, not. No, no. I'm not a doctor, but I've heard that that kind of activity is not safe. Exactly, yeah. Anything you want to add to that? Um, no, I agree. Um, some some headphones that I've bought, in, you know, in-ear headphones I've bought in the past um, come with this little scraping tool. So it's kind of a little metal ring that you can run around the inside. Obviously, it's not going to work for earpods. Um, sorry, what are they called? AirPods. Um, it's more for the, the ones which have the little rubber bungs that you can stick directly yeah. inside your ear. Now, if you're looking at this thinking, this all sounds kind of grim. I'd rather not put things in my ear. Um, you can either go for over-ear headphones, like uh, both Christian and I are wearing to record this, or um, something which I did see at IFO is the Jabra Elite, no, sorry, Jabra 65T and the 75T, which will be out later this year. They don't, they sit flush to your ear rather than inside. So right. they'll get a little bit of grime on it, but it's not like you're sticking it into the ear canal and picking up all the wax. Right. So they try and just sort of sit flat. So you're not getting some of that more uh, 
do gruesome have, stuff. Do they have some kind of special way of not falling out then? Yeah, I tried them on actually. The the whole thing has been really well designed. They've got a little curve just at the top that sits it in the um oh, I didn't think I'd be talking about ear biology today. Uh you know the little the little bit where you can sit old headphones used to have grips that you could sit inside the sort of the the circle of your ear. You right. know, just above your eardrum, you've got that little groove. Right, right, yeah, uh, okay. Yeah, they've got a groove on the device which sort of sit uh, ah, into that. Right. Okay. So most uh, true wireless headphones just try and push into your ears, whereas these try and hook on uh, so they don't have to go in instead. Right, okay. I like. I think I like the sound of that. Yeah, that that sounds cleaner at least. Yes. Um, okay, The that's not what we did. Where did that come from? That's not what we're doing. What's going on here? Uh, okay, we no, we're not doing that. That was months ago. Um, <laughs> crikey. No, that's not it either. What's going on here? Here we go. Shocking online accounts that are sold on the dark web. Uh, if you don't know what the dark web is, it's a kind of seedy underbelly of the internet. Um, long, long time ago, the internet was lots of, or the web, I should say, and the internet as well, was lots and lots of sites, very much in a kind of a linear sort of sense, but with the... Um, I think that the the emergence of Google and Facebook have kind of made the web more of a hierarchy. Yeah. Talking kind of loosely here, but there is more of a hierarchy to the web now than there was. And some of the sites that would have been easy to find 10 years ago or 20 years ago are a lot tougher to find now. Um, There's a thing called the dark web, which is um, where kind of uh, crime takes place, uh, criminal activities in addition to completely innocent stuff as well. Um, but, you know, um, I d- identities are traded on the dark web, for instance. And um, we, we've um, had a look at uh, eight examples of the types of personal account um, that are sold on the dark web. So we're talking about financial and personal accounts, email accounts, dating profiles, Netflix accounts even that have been compromised, adult website accounts, um, airline accounts, PayPal accounts and even gaming accounts, which is Fortnite. Uh, you know, there's there's all there's a variety of different ways in which scammers can use these details to steal your identity, rob you, get free flights, uh, various various ways. Even use them to scam other people as well. Uh, James, the dark mm-hmm. web. Uh, this, I mean, there's not really an awful lot that can be done about the dark web other than what's already happened, I think, is there? Because once one method of subduing it is implemented, it's just, you know, servers are just going to pop up with their data rooted from other sources. So I think, um, so the dark web, if you imagine the early internet was kind of like your street and everybody has a house and an address. But you don't necessarily know who is at each address. So you'd have to go to each one to to go and find out. And then search engines like Google popped up and they went, oh, we'll tell you. We'll make an address book and we'll we'll be your sort of guide to to all the addresses around you. And that became what we now think of as the Internet. But outside of that, you can choose not to be in this indexed version of the Internet. So, you know, you can have an address that still exists, but nobody might know about it. And that's kind of what these dark web websites are. So they're not something necessarily different. They operate in the same way. You just can't find them as easily. 
And so all of the data is still served on regular servers and in normal places like that. It's just you, if you use Google, you can't find it. So you have to know where it is before you can go looking. So, yeah, like you said, it's completely right to think that if one site gets shut down, then someone will create another one and the data can just be moved across. Um, this is something that's been going on for a while, this kind of uh, whack-a-mole. So even yeah. in the mid-2000s, you know, you had this with uh, torrent websites like the Pirate Bay, which is the most infamous example. And every time a country or a law enforcement agency would close down one server, they'd go, okay, we'll move it to a different country or a different domain or a different thing. And the Pirate Bay is still going, despite being completely illegal pretty much everywhere, certainly in Europe. Um, but you can still find the Pirate Bay. Not that you should, but you can. <laughs> um, and it's the, it's the exact same thing with these. So we use a different terminology for these account, these sites that are kind of invisible to search engines but the same thing will happen you know if if we close one down they'll just open somewhere else yeah you need i mean you'd actually need to know the address of the sites in order to access them yeah um and a lot of them are accessed via uh, tor aren't they as well yes yeah, so, so they're onion dot onion websites so that's uh yeah accessible through the tor network yeah which basically routes um your path through the internet through many many servers so it's more or less more or less impossible to trace yeah where you've been yeah not, you're doing that probably not totally not, impossible not totally impossible no, probably not no. no it's it would seem based on um reports from uh, uh alphabet agencies that it's not absolutely impossible yeah yes um so just difficult yeah so um yeah, staying safe from the de dark web um, market of accounts. I, I mean, I think the best way to do is to make sure you are maintaining a mature, sensible, secure password policy. Oh, I suppose we should say the, the data that's being traded here is most likely from the regular Internet. Uh, it comes from hacks and hacks, data yes, breaches course, yeah. and that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. So these so to prevent your stuff being found on these websites you need to like christian said you need to stay secure on the regular websites so you know password managers making sure you don't expose too much um, personal information online um, always using a vpn especially on public wi-fi that kind of thing yes absolutely absolutely um you'll find the link to that article eight shocking online accounts sold on the dark web in the show notes and all the steps that you need to take to prevent your data from being traded on the dark web ah because if you do find hey, this, this almost segues um you might mm -hmm. find that you're receiving spam um or you might be getting spammed another way from inadvertently signing up to email newsletters you might have um clicked okay to some apparently amazing internet offer input your email address and realize it was an absolute sham and then they've got your email address and they start sending you marketing emails and stuff um newsletters are a pain in the backside some are great they make use of newsletters great for example Indeed. whereas others and that's not the only one i would endorse uh there are newsletters that are frustrating there's a Discworld newsletter i think i still get it but it always goes into spam which is really frustrating because it's the only newsletter that i really regularly really want to read, read. When it comes yeah. In. yeah so frustrating i think it's because they send it in plain text right um and it just ends up straight into spam so obviously i forget about it and then i check my spam folder and i found that like, there's six issues of it that yeah. i'm behind so that's really frustrating uh i digress 
so there are various ways you, you can deal with um, email newsletters that you don't want to be receiving. And we've taken a look recently at various uh, mobile and web apps that you can use to deal with these. Uh, on, um, on Android and iOS, the tools called uh, Stoop, which is a dedicated newsletter reader app, which will um, let you it's kind of, a, well, described here as a fresh take on traditional RSS readers, giving you a news digest instead of constant drips of information. Uh, think of it as an inbox dedicated to newsletters. So that's obviously a useful approach to take. Alternatively, you could use CleanFox, which deletes newsletters uh, for carbon offsets, um, which I think is probably a little bit tenuous, but the fact that it does the job is quite cool. There's also some um, useful tools such as leave me alone there is inbox kitten and subscription zero which i've used uh which deals with automated newsletter um the unsubscription do they unsubscribe yeah they yeah. unsubscribe they don't desubscribe you do they no they unsubscribe no, probably yeah. not yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, what's, your, what's your thought on uh, newsletters James? Um, this is slightly less of an issue for those of us in Europe since uh, last year yes. with the implementation of GDPR, which required everyone to get our express consent in order to send us things. And so anyone in Europe or covered by the GDPR is probably seeing their sort of um, junk mail uh, reduced quite a lot since then. But yep. Obviously, that's not the case around the world. And so while I've spent the last year sort of using GDPR as a way to bounce all of these things back and declutter my emails uh, that's not not everybody has that right so these are a great idea um, I would add that gmail actually has an inbuilt feature to do not as powerful as these like if you want if you've got lots of newsletters that you need to manage and that kind of thing these are great but if you've got an occasional thing um, gmail is actually able to identify where it's come from a mailing list yeah. and it gives you a little tag at the top that says do you want to unsubscribe for this and it will send an unsubscribe request on your behalf without you having to do it. And I think may even put them into spam from then on for, for your account. I, I can't remember expressly. But uh, yeah, it, so Gmail can handle some of this. But if you want a more powerful option, then these, these are great. Um, I think you mentioned about the CleanFox, the carbon offsets. I think the, the link there isn't that they're saying we will do carbon offsets on your behalf. It's... Um, by cutting down your email quantity, you ah, are, right, right, you right, are yeah. reducing the environmental impact of, of the internet. I mean, it is yeah. going to be an enormously tiny fraction uh, that yeah. you're saving there. But, you know, every little helps. Yeah, I'm, I'm still not immediately convinced by that because of the just the power I, 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 I yeah. don't think there's enough like you said there's not an enormous variation in how much power a server's going to use and the space has been managed and yeah. all that sort of thing uh, it's, it's a nice idea I think there's maybe a different way that they could maybe promote an environmental take on that um, I'm not taking consultancies at the moment though clean fox so don't ask me <laughs> uh, okay let's move on uh, to the Windows tech support scam now, this is something that's been going on for years and years and years and years. I remember when I was, ooh, yeah, ooh, I mean, 13, 14, 15 years ago, I worked for the UK's health service in IT. 
and we were getting calls from um, and the, 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 the portion I worked for had sites all across the northeast of England. Um, so we would get calls from you know, places like 50, 60 miles away saying that they just had a call from Microsoft. And, you know, no, you haven't. Uh, and then and then the scammers started calling us directly mm. to our help desk, which was kind of amusing in many ways. Um, the Windows tech support scam has been going on for years. It's basically an attempt by someone over the telephone to gain illegal access to your computer in order to fix a made up problem, which you then pay for immediately or deliver some kind of uh, malware Trojan software to your computer by using the, your kind of innocence and ignorance over how your computer works. Um, we've looked at it a few times. I've even recorded a call with a scammer um, some years ago, uh, which is on YouTube, um, which we've included in several articles. This was in a little bit playing in the background. You said a I'm uh, just trying to remember when this actually happened. What, what, is this a box with legs? What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, it was three or four years ago uh, I recorded this. I'm not a technician, no. I don't know what you're talking about, I'm afraid. Um, in which I um, kept this person hanging on when and you know, pretended I didn't know what I was doing so that they could go through the whole thing with me so I could record it and see exactly what happens. Um, the thing is about this, basically what happens is they target mainly Windows users, or almost only Windows users, uh, because it's the largest market segment. Uh, they will then t give you instructions on how to check something, typically, which is um, opening the Windows Event Viewer, um, which they then tell you says a particular thing, which it will do, um, because they know what the Windows Event Viewer is likely to say. And the Windows Event Viewer has very little to do with um, checking for viruses, which is why, why they're calling. And it's then a case of them talking you through installing a remote access tool, them then taking control of your computer. And that's when the trouble starts. Now, I don't, have you, I'm sure you must have done, you must have had one of these calls, James. I've not had a Windows one, but I do get a lot of scam calls about um, car accidents. This is a particular ah, yeah, one yeah, that happens yeah. in the moment. And they try and convince you that they know information about something that's happened to you so that you will continue with the call and give them information and blah, blah, blah. Sure. And it's a really similar thing with this. It's um, it's kind of based around social engineering. So like we were saying with the the accounts that get hacked and, and go onto the dark web, you know, if someone gets your email address and name and phone number, that's not very much information to go on. But if they pick up, the, if you pick up the call and they say, hello, Christian, uh, we've heard you've got a problem with your computer, you immediately feel like, oh, they know me. They're, this must be real, you know, because they, they know who I am. They knew my phone number and they know that I've got a computer. Like, OK, I feel like I trust this person. And that's kind of their their entry point to you, letting them continue. Yeah. Um, and then they make guesses on other stuff. So then they'll say, like, oh, I know that you've had a problem with your Windows computer or your laptop. And people go, oh, I do have a, a Windows computer or a laptop. I mean, that's that's really good. And they sort of try to guess what might be the problem. It's a bit like, um, you know, these sketches about psychics and mediums, you know, who go, oh, I've heard you've got a, a person in your past and their name began with T. And then you fill in the gap and you go, oh, yeah, Theo. Yeah, I knew I knew Theo. 
and it's sort of convincing yourself yeah, that yeah. that they know more about you than they really do yeah yeah that's basically it um another thing is obviously it's nonsense it's complete nonsense it's a waste of your time they're trying to make a lot of money out of you in a completely illegal way the scammers are often aggressive and pushy they've been described as sleazy by some commenters uh to uh, make use of there's been threats and reports of violence and doxing um admittedly unsubstantiated but um and this is against people who sort of called them out hung them up had an argument with them on the phone and i think um the best solution for this is basically just to hang up yeah now there's this whole attitude to if i hang up they're just going to ring someone else well if everyone hangs up then that's the end of their business that kills that kills it so you know use call blockers if they call your mobile um there's one built into android and if they're ringing in landline just hang up i think it's the safest calmest less um distressing way to deal with these calls yeah and i think that applies to all scam calls actually i mean the windows ones are quite easy to identify because as soon as they ring up and say i've got a problem you've got a problem with your computer you can go oh okay this is this type of scam um but it's if you get an unsolicited call from anyone claiming to be anything that's about your personal information, your your data, your finances, anything like that, the best bet really is to just put down the phone. And if it's, say, from your bank and they go, oh, we've got this problem, you need to give us all of your details, put down the phone and say, I'm going to ring you back uh, and find the legitimate number and ring them back. And then you yeah. can prove to yourself, like, this is the real company that I am speaking to. And I know that, you know, it's verifiable. Yeah. So if you get calls that you're uncertain of, I would just hang them up anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the banking ones, uh, where they claim to be from your bank, they're tricky to deal with. They're easy to deal with, I should say, because you can easily ring your bank and say, have you called me? Um, They have your phone number in most cases. Microsoft don't have your phone number. Well, they, they may do in your Microsoft account, but they won't call you. They won't call you from it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, There's, there's very, I don't. Th- I can't think of a uh, legitimate scenario where Microsoft would be calling you, unless you work for Microsoft and you've taken a day off. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. That's the only one I can think of. Um, okay. Well, do you know what? That wraps up this week's really useful podcast, in which we've spoken about um, some of the best things at IFA that might crystallise into interesting devices in the future, um, whether Huawei are trustworthy or not. Um, Google Photos memories feature, uh, how to clean AirPods and other in-ear earphones, Uh, online accounts (laughs) that sold on the dark web, how to manage your newsletters and unsubscribe to the ones that you don't want, and the Windows tech support telephone scam. Uh, The really useful podcast is the tech podcast for technophobes. If you know anyone who would benefit from the hints and tips that we give, the clarity that we hopefully deliver to the world of using technology, which permeates our every waking moment, uh, certainly in the Western world, um, put them in our direction. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Transistor, and also Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere else you can find a podcast to listen to today oh and we're on youtube as well uh james Frew, thanks for joining us this week on the really useful podcast cheers thanks christian and to you dear listener we will be back next week with another show until then it's goodbye <laughs>